Nico. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Alternate Oscars. I'm your host, Gabe Warren, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and awarding our favorite films of each year, starting in 1928 and going onwards. We will discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We will be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes to dot com. The amount of categories will also change and evolve over time um, to reflect the Academy's evolution of time. My guest today is going to be an illustrator, location designer, certified film fan, Dashiell Silva. Welcome to the show, Dash. Hi, Gabe. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be exciting. Um, it's a very strange year. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, today we're going to be talking like, about like, films. Oh, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it's like very strange year, very interesting year. A lot of good stuff. Not, not that much good stuff. Love kind of it's a very weird middle year. Like, yeah, a lot of good stuff the year before. A lot of good stuff the year after. This year is very strange, and obviously the big winner this year, the real life one, is not well. We'll get to that. Today. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. today we're going to be talking about the films of 1958, and I, um, what I always ask, what I always ask my guests going into this is, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible? This can be any film that was released in 1958 but was not on the reminder list of eligible releases for this particular year not eligible for the ceremony this year oh i don't know because like i would say my big my big bet noir for this year is two films i guess and they actually did get some nominations but i feel they deserve more anti-mame and uh and uh the goddess they're 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 two i think definitely deserve a whole lot more love Is that, is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Um, okay. Cool, sometimes, cool. <laughs> sometimes when sometimes when I ask this question, I get stuck myself. So that's um, okay. Well, actually, I do have some. Um, there's Ice Cold and Alex. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Elevator to the Gallows. Oh, one that's of a good the one. first entries into like the French New Wave. Um, mm-hmm. And then Death of a Cyclist. Um, Ashes and Diamonds. Mm. Most of the ones are like really highly acclaimed um, international films. Um, Ingmar Bergman had a film this year, The Magician. Yeah, mm-hmm. some really good stuff. He had another one too, I think, because that was in, I put it in my foreign language ones. I think it was um, Brink of Life, is another one of his ones, I think. I don't think I've seen that one. Basically, there's, there's a lot of great world cinema this year. Like, yeah, like for sure. Which, which definitely, obviously, it's early days with that sort of that dimension of film being recognized at the Oscars. So it's easy to look at um, certain emissions and think of them as oversights or or snubs when that's not really the case. I don't think, but because it's all very in its infancy. Yeah, because what this is the third year of there being an official best international feature film category it started in 56 yeah. right yeah yeah you yeah. would be correct so yeah like yeah so like 
there's no point there's no point getting into like snub or whatever because it doesn't 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 really matter it's at a time when the only countries yeah it's at a time when the only countries that are like consistently submitting stuff are like france italy japan one of the germanies like it's there's not a lot of there's not exactly a great representation of the breadth of world cinema happening at this time anyway yeah um Mm -hmm. so i guess now that we've um gone through that question i think it's time to jump into our um our list of nominees so what we do is that we start with the last category special effects and then we'll the first best picture and we always take turns Mm -hmm. announcing our nominees Mm -hmm. the guests going first so starting with special effects would you like to take it away dash yeah okay so i will say first of all because i don't because this is one where there was only two vfx nominees this year i just did too like i just replaced the equivalent um i think i could come up with one or two more on the fly if you need to but anyway uh the the one i'm gonna say first is varin the unbelievable uh a, a post godzilla pre godzilla versus kong toho monster movie made by ishiro honda of godzilla fame and it's not particularly well remembered like it's just it's more of a little footnote um but I'm a big Godzilla fan, so any chance I can have for like Godzilla or Godzilla, like tangentially related stuff to get a little bit of Oscar glory, I'm gonna push it. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have another? Oh, sorry. And oh, sorry. I thought you meant that we could do one. Sorry, sorry. And the other one I'm gonna pick is a night to remember the the. Until 97, the definitive Titanic movie, which has some really great special effects moments in it. Like that's still look impressive today. And it was so well researched for the time. Like the book it's based on was the definitive book about the Titanic. Um, A lot of the bits in it just look like stuff from the James Cameron one, like in a really interesting way, because it's trying to, be as accurate as possible and it still just looks really good like it's really just it looks expensive it looks the scale's great you believe you're watching a massive ship sink <laughs> nice those are um two good choices i don't think i've seen your first pick but i really like that uh, a night to remember so my nominees are yeah it's um a night to remember run silent run deep south pacific tom thumb mm. and vertigo Oh, Virgo is a very good choice. I, I wouldn't have thought to put it in there, but it's actually, yeah. <laughs> Terrific choices. Uh-huh. So next we have best film editing. Mm-hmm. Let me get to my... Let's see. Film editing, film editing. Yes, film editing. Cool. Um, so for film editing, sorry, I have... I just need to scooch my spreadsheet a little because it's not fitting on the screen properly. Um, So for film editing, I put down The Big Country, um, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, God's Little Acre, The Defiant Ones, and I Want to Live. Nice. Um, All good choices. (laughs) I selected Mm -hmm. for my five 
the Defiant Ones, yeah. Home Before Dark, Some Came Running, Touch of, e- mm-hmm. Touch of Evil, and mm-hmm. Vertigo. Good choices, yeah. Um, and next what did have... you think of... Um... Oh, sorry. <laughs> you go ahead, you go ahead. I was going to say, did... what did you think of... Um... So I, a few of these movies I'd only seen for the first time despite knowing of them like for a long time so like I was I found some came running really fascinating like because I love Shirley MacLaine she's my favorite actress um, but it's such a strange film like it's it's trying to make the from here to eternity lightning strike twice you know with like same novelist Sinatra in the role again Um and it somehow somewhat works, but uh, yeah, what did you feel about it? I really liked it. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that it didn't necessarily try to recreate the phenomenon of um, the first James Jones novel. It felt sure. It felt more like a um, a good companion piece rather than just trying to cash in. Yes. Even though it was probably the studio's yeah. intent to try and cash in on the success of that. D- definitely. Like, I-, I feel that it had merits on its own, but you could definitely see a lot of, like, we're trying to make this again. And it's like, it's not, it's not like, um, it's unfair to make it try and do that. I thought that I, it's interesting because, like, I think Shirley MacLaine is really good in what is on paper not a very good role. Like she has, she brings so much warmth and heart to it. But I also thought, by comparison, Martha Heyer, who was also nominated, was quite awful. And the whole time you're like, Sinatra wants to be with her over Shirley, who's like vivacious and fun. And sure, she's not the smartest, but like she seems like a really nice person. Whereas the other woman is an android. <laughs> It's very confusing to me. <laughs> so, um, next we have best makeup and hairstyle. Yeah. Um. Oh wait, I think I, I think I, I neglected this one. If you want, I can take a minute and just come up with some if you want. Um. Because I, sh- I should. Sure. Um. I'll Sorry, just, so- I'll just name mine while you come up with. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, okay. I apo- apologies for that. That's fine. That's fine. It happens. Um, my nominees are The Blob, Dracula, um, The Fly, The Horse's Mouth, and The Vikings. Mm, nice. Um, let's see. I'll do... I think... Well, I'm. Yeah. Okay. So I've managed to get uh, just four off the top of my head, but these are the ones which I definitely think that in terms of like makeup and hairstyling really jumped out at me. Um, so I'm going to go with Auntie Mame because Rosalind goes through about four or five different wigs in that movie and they're all great. Um, some came running because I think Shirley looked so cute in her like, you know, cheap good time girl outfit and makeup styling. So an outfit, get up. Um, Dracula, absolutely, the makeup is just like great. Like Christopher Lee's transformation into just this ghoul is fantastic, and I think Vertigo because Kim Novak's just like the the, the look is so iconic, right? The and the fact that she transforms into it is just so mm. good. Nice, those are all good <laughs> choices. Um, yeah. So for um next we have. 
um, were in the cinematography category, starting with mm-hmm. color cinematography. Yes. Okay, give me one second. Um, so these were actually these were actually such fun to do the cinematography ones because just so much gorgeous stuff, both in color and black and white, in this year I think. Um, so for color, yeah. Um, for color, I'm going to go with Anti Mame, um, and Castle Hudson Roof, which is just sublime. Uh, Vertigo, um, Bell Book and Candle, and a uh, Time to Love and a Time to Die. Nice, all good choices. Um, <laughs> I went with um, the Big Country. The Horse's Mouth, Mon Uncle, Some Came Running, and Vertigo. Oh, actually, you know what? I knew I should I should have put the big country in there. I'm gonna add that as an alternate sixth because <laughs> I, I a writing lit- candidate. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I literally tweeted about how great I thought the cinematography is, and then I flub it and don't put it in my list. Like, what's wrong with me? But yeah, no, the cinematography in like because I, I had never seen the big country until I think two years ago and um my dad has this like romantic fixation with wyoming but like this idea of wyoming like the the prairie grasslands and all that and i've never fully understood it um because he's not like a he's not like a an outdoorsy type or anything like he's an accountant but having watched the big country more than any other film that's like a lot of westerns i'm like oh i get it like i really get it like it's just sumptuous. Yeah, definitely. Um, so next we have best black and white cinematography. Mm-hmm. So I got the goddess, and I want to live, the tarnished angels, uh, God's little acre, and touch of evil. Nice. So um, my nominees are The Defiant Ones, Home Before Dark, Knights of Kiberia, A Night to Remember, and Touch of Evil. Oh, those are good. I mean, oh, so good. Like, this was saying that, like, in 58, as much as, like, the quality of the films is kind of up and down, like, some of them are okay, some are not good. There isn't, like, ob- the obvious front runners that tend to anchor like an Oscars season aren't necessarily apparent um, but some of the ones like the photography in place is just so so lush like in, in these really interesting movies like like the Tarnished Angels is such a gorgeous film and it's so like Spartan you know and even the goddess where like it's doing it's basically doing blonde you know like it's trying to do the not Marilyn Monroe story before she's like while she's still alive so because so much of the Marilyn story is ends with death it's such a it just looked really it just looked really really like 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 edgy and interesting yeah definitely um so um next category is best costume design mm-hmm um well so like i said like i said at the get i said at the get like anti-mame is i know it's like a film that's dated i know it's a film that's stupid 
I love Rosalind Russell. I think she's one of the most talented people that ever lived and she deserved better. Um, so Auntie Mame, of course, because that film, like her, the, her first co-star is her costumes. That's getting like the first nomination in my thing. Absolutely. Then it's The Goddess, um, Catherine Hodgson Roof. And then I'm going to say Gigi, which I don't like Gigi that much, but can't deny the costumes are good. And my fifth choice is somewhat out of the blue, Damn Yankees. Nice. Those are all good choices. It was sort of hard to settle on uh, like five this year because mm-hmm. the breath of good choice. Um, but um, my five are Auntie Mame, Bell Book and Candle, mm-hmm. Damn Yankees, mm-hmm. DG, and Some Came Running. Mm. Some Came Running is a really interesting choice because like I definitely, when you say it, I realized on reflection that I think I was dismissive of its costuming in a way that, oh no, a lot of it is like, everyone's look is quite distinct, you know, like Sinatra is always in his, is always in his army uniform. Uh, Shirley is like, you know, dressed like a cheap sex worker. There's um, Martha Heyer, who's like, you know, a, a, a school marm, but like a, a high class school marm. And there's Dean Martin, who's like a gangster. Like everyone's doing, everyone's very distinct and quite subtle, but definitely in different ways, which I think it's easy to, it's definitely like a case of um, best rather than most costume. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? Like in the, in the way, in the way that like G, things like Gigi and Auntie Mame are definitely like, this is a, an Oscar for most costume. Definitely. Um, so next we have best art direction. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to go with um, Bell Book and Candle, Anti Mame, The Goddess, The Big Country, and A Night to Remember. All good choices. Um, my nominees are The Long Hot Summer, A Night to Remember, Some Came Running, Touch of Evil, and Vertigo. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah, those are really cool. <laughs> so next we have Best Sound. Um... Okay. So for sound, I went with A Night to Remember, Vertigo, I Want to Live, The Big Country, and Bell Book and Candle. Nice. Um, so my five nominees are Man of the West, Mon Uncle, the Tarnished mm-hmm. Angels, Touch of Evil, and Vertigo. Terrific. Next, we have Best Original Song. Okay. 
And so I found this one slightly hard going because a lot of them, it's kind of like the one that really picked ends up getting nominated, you know. But I did find one that I found two. And actually, sorry, what I should say is I think one of them is pushing it. I think one of them probably technically isn't a valid nominee because it's probably in the original show. But I think it's like my favorite song from the show in the movie. Um, but that was like my fifth place one to fill it in because I was having some trouble with it anyway. So, um, I'm going to go with Gods of the Laker from Gods of the Laker, uh, Gigi from Gigi, Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair from South Pacific, Who's Got the Pain from Damn Yankees, and To Be Loved from Some Came Running. And now I realize that's probably actually two of them, which are probably technically ineligible, but... They're my favorite songs from those shows. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so my five nominees are Hard Headed Woman from King Creole, The Long Hot Summer from The Long Hot Summer, Separate Tables from Separate Tables, Teacher's Pet from Teacher's Pet, and To Love and Be Loved from Some Came Running. Hmm. Pretty good. And next we have best original score. Oh yeah, this this was a really fun one. So there was a lot of. This is the one where I was like, oh, uh, maybe this is a music like when I was trying when I was originally trying to figure out how to do the musicals one, but like the actual scores overall were just really good. I thought. Um, and of course, it helps that there's one that's sort of head and shoulders floating above them all right in terms of the its legendary status. Um, so I'm going to go with Vertigo, The Big Country, Gods of the Laker, The Music Room, and I Want to Live. Sweet. Those are all good scores. Um... My five are The Big Country, Knights of Kabiria, Some Came Running, Touch of Evil, and Vertigo. Oh, nice. I oh yeah, the that that um the player piano bit in Touch of Evil. Oof, so good. Early Henry Mancini. I know, right? Like so good like it's one of those bits of music that you hear at one time and then it's stuck in your head for literally the rest of your life (laughs) and what's up next um uh, um the um parts and short film but i know that um you didn't um have the time to um see those so we can skip ahead of that and over to... yeah yeah I, I feel those ones are those ones are harder to like get some yeah insight yeah. into right because they're they're very much their own thing and it's difficult to yeah to, yeah <laughs> so what we got next um best international feature film oh yes now this was the one that more than any other one i was like oh i don't even have to like pick here they just jumped out straight away like there was so little work involved in this one <laughs> Um, okay, so my five are uh, 
The Music Room, India, Hidden Fortress, Japan, Ashes and Diamonds, Poland, Mononcle, France, and Brink of Life, Sweden. Nice. Um, so my nominees are Ashes and Diamonds from Poland, um, Big Deal on Madonna Street from Italy, The Hidden Fortress from Japan, The Magician from Sweden, and Mon Uncle from France. Like it's such a it's such an insanely like high bar for eligible films in that category for that year, right? Where it's like, cool, we can have Ray, Kurosawa, Tati, Waja, and Bergman all like easily in competition. Just wild. <laughs> Certainly. Um, so next we have Best Adapted Screenplay. Mm-hmm. So of the two screenplay ones, this was the easier one for me. I struggled a lot with the original screenplay because most of the things I kept coming up with were adapted. So with, by that, I mean to say that there's a lot of really good adapted screenplays this year. Um, so I want to go with Can Hutton Roof, Gods of the Laker, Mame, sorry, Anti-Mame, not Mame, Anti-Mame, uh, Separate Tables, and Vertigo. Nice. Um, my nominees are Cat on a Hot Tea Roof, Bonjour Tristesse, The Horse's Mouth, Some Came Running, and Vertigo. Cool. Um, okay, let me ask you a question about one of those. So how do you feel about the Cats and Hot and Roof adaptation? Um, I think it works. Um, I think it works as a film for what it is. I understand that. Yes. Um, it was kind of sanitized from the play for the film, for film's sake. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, having, yeah, I, I agree having, I agree fully. Having not seen the play, I can't make that judgment. Um, But next we have Best Original Screenplay. Mm -hmm. Um, So I struggled a lot with this and because most of, like, my first, basically my first three ones had already been nominated and everything else I came up with was just nominees. So basically I've ended up with the, the actual nominees. So I had um, Houseboat, Teacher's Pet, which were not really the choices, but the actual real choices I made were The Defiant Ones, The Goddess, and The Sheepman, just because I always want Shirley MacLaine in any opportunity to be linked with a project that does well. Certainly, for sure. Um, hmm. So, um, wait, we're on original screenplay, right? Just want to double check yep. for sure. I'm not skipping ahead. Um, so my nominees <laughs> for original screenplay are The Defiant mm-hmm. Ones, A Man Escapes, Mon mm-hmm. Uncle, Knights of Kabiria, and Smiles of the Summer Night. So that that it's interesting because when I was picking my ones, right, I tended to think this is a 
uh, a Los Angeles County Award. I'm going to try to stick to films that are, you know, like like made in made with in Hollywood. And I think that this actually underlies like an issue maybe that's happening this year in that none of the so few of the stories that year are original, you know, like like the the because four of your five, with the exception of the one that actually won, the defined ones are all like foreign language or international movies, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, so next, we're in the acting categories now, starting with supporting actress. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh God, like this was just absolute like kid in a candy store year for me. Lots of, lots of just gorgeous little like fun supporting, supporting actress roles to pick from. Um, so, uh, First of all, Peggy Cass in Anti-Mame. I think she has to stay no matter what. She won the Tony for it. She's friggin' hilarious as Gooch. Um, but everything else is new choices. So Coral Brown from Anti-Mame, who I think is also hilarious. Um, Gladys Cooper in Separate Tables, doing one of her great tyrannical mother routines. Um, Elsa Lanchester from Bell Book and Candle, again, being freaking hilarious. And... This is someone who I love um, for this movie, but also for another movie she did, Madeline Sherwood in Canna Hot and Roof. I love her in Castle Hot and Roof, and I also love her in Sweet Bird of Youth, where I think that she's just terrific in both of them. And like she's so perfectly, like wonderfully loathsome in Canna Hot and Roof. It's just so fun to watch. Yeah, definitely. All great. Um, so my nominees are Judas Anderson in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Good choice. Lee Remick in The Long Hot Summer. Harry Anderson in Smiles of a Summer Night. Shirley MacLaine in Some Came Running. I felt like she was more of a supporting character. I think I, I think that's a fair assessment. And Janet Lee in Touch of Evil. Oh, that's a good choice. And... Janet Lee's only Oscar nomination was Psycho, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 just checking. And next we have Best Supporting Actor. Okay. Um, so, again, pretty good year. Um, what I'm going to say is, straight out of the, straight out of the get, I'm going to say David Niven, separate tables. Let's put that to bed. None of this lead actor nonsense. He's on screen for 22 minutes. Shortest performance ever to win Best Actor. No, no. <laughs> Uh, Burl Eyes for Cats and Hot in Roof. Uh, Christopher Lee for Dracula, which even though it's the titular role, he's not actually on screen that much. And I think it would just be fun. Um, uh, Orson Welles in Touch of Evil and Stephen Hill in The Goddess. Absolutely amazing. Um, my nominees are Burl Ives in Cat on Hot in Roof, Arthur Kennedy in Some Came Running, Dean Martin in Some Came Running, David Niven in Separate Tables, and Orson Welles in Touch of Evil. Oh, that's that's really that's really similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 a it's a fun year for supporting actors, I think. For sure. Um, so next we have Best Leading Actress, which is always like mm-hmm. the best part of oh, this always. ceremony. 
So this is like, like, so, you know, there's certain years where the standard is high or at least interesting. I feel this is one of them. So in actual fact, I kept thinking of it and I ended up with almost the exact list of nominees. But one key difference. Um, so basically it's Rosalind Russell, Auntie Mae, Elizabeth Taylor, Castle Hunter Roof, Susan Hayward, I Want to Live, Shirley MacLaine and Some Came Running, even though taking your point, I think, yeah, she could be in, in she could be in supporting. I think she's unfortunately just at the margin. And depending what your mood is, you can like make it either, you know. But the key addition I want to say is I think Kim Stanley is absolutely should be there instead of Deborah Carr, who I love Deborah Carr, like love her so much. But frankly, almost none of the movies she got Oscar nominations for were the most notable films of her career, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas Kim Stanley made five movies in her career and like, you know, like there's best actress, there's best actress and there's most actress and she's doing both. Absolutely. Um, so my nominees are Gene Simmons in Home Before Dark, Susan Hayward in I Want to Live, Joanne Woodward in The Long Hot Summer, Julieta Messina in Nights of Tiberia, and Kim Novak in Vertigo. Dash, are you there? Did you hear that? Sorry, sorry. Wait, it's it's lagging a second. I think it's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's back. It's back. Okay. Cool. Did you um hear my nominees? No, no. Sorry. Could you could you? Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, my nominees are Gene Simmons in Home Before Dark, Susan oh. Hayward in I Want to Live, Joanne Woodward in The Long Hot Summer, Julieta mm-hmm. Messina in Nights of Cabiria, and Kim mm-hmm. Novak in Vertigo. Very good choice. I mean, talking about like people that deserve better, like Gene Simmons, right? If anyone deserves yeah. better. Absolutely. I I feel bad for her because my boyfriend watched Spartacus and um, name recognition isn't always his strongest suit. But like, so he watched, he's like, who's that lady that was kind of like Elizabeth Taylor and Audrey Hepburn? And like, if that isn't it, you know, it's like she's kind of unfortunately in the middle. Like Liz is sexier. Audrey's like more princessy and Jean's kind of in the middle. And I know she has her own merits as well, but you can definitely see how like in so many of her movies, especially in this period, it's like we wanted Audrey Hepburn, but couldn't get her, or we wanted Elizabeth an Elizabeth Taylor type, but couldn't get her. You know? Yeah, it's a shame. It's it really um, is because like she has such a she has she does have a unique presence on her own, but it's definitely just what is what she's being used as. I'm glad that she had a great longevity to her career, and actually, because most of the stuff she did later on, like in the '60s and her television work, is much more interesting. Like she's in that terrific episode of Star Trek Next Generation, the trial episode where she plays a prejudiced retired admiral in like a courtroom scene. It's it's really good. I should check it out at some point. It, it's it's really um, fabulous. Like she, she's doing very like prestige, grand dame turning up in television in the 80s. So she's like, I'm an admiral and I'm kind of a racist and I'm going to be like, but it, all that comes out slowly through the episode. So it's really good. So um, next we have Best Leading Actor. Mm. Okay, what we got here? Uh, cool. So for Best Leading Actor, um, 
checking. Okay, cool. Uh, so I went with, I kept Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier in the Defiant Ones because for both of them, frankly, some the best work of their respective careers, pretty much. Uh, and it's just a great, great film. Everything else is new additions. So I've got Paul Newman and Catelyn Hodgson Roof. Um, uh, sorry, uh, James Stewart in Vertigo. And I have Gregory Peck in The Big Country. Nice. Um, my nominees are um, Paul Newman and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Sidney Poitier in The Defiant Ones, Spencer Tracy in The Last Hurrah, Frank Sinatra in Some Came Running, and James Stewart in Vertigo. Mm. It's, it, you know, you, 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 you get it. Like, like the best actor, the best actor category can sometimes be yeah. a, a chore. And this year it's actually, there's actually a lot of really good stuff, you know, like, like I, Whereas sometimes I'm like, oh god, I can come up with two performances I like, but this year I'm like, oh cool, five actually yeah. good ones that I enjoy watching. Yeah, definitely for sure. Um, yeah. So, um, when we get back, we will um, finish mm-hmm. announcing our nominees and start announcing the winners. So stay tuned. Yeah. After these messages, we'll be right back. 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 Yeah. After these messages, we'll be right back. And now we're back. So we're going to wrap up our nominations. Um, we still have, we just have director and picture to do. So let's start with director, best director. Um, let's see here. Okay, uh, for director, I'm gonna go with uh, Orson Welles for Touch of Evil, uh, William Wyler for The Big Country, Alfred Hitchcock for Vertigo. John Cromwell for The Goddess and Richard Brooks for Cat and Hunting Roof. Nice. Um, so I ultimately went with Richard Brooks for Cat on a Hunting Roof, Federico Fellini for Knights of Cabiria, Vincent Minnelli for Some Came Running, Orson Welles for Touch of Evil, and Alfred Hitchcock for Vertigo. Mm. Yeah, that, 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 that it's, it's definitely like there's a lot of. Again, another category where there's a lot of iconic people delivering some of the strongest work of their career. <laughs> For sure, definitely. Yeah, like like, and and actually, uh, thinking back and everything so far, it's interesting how actually for both of us, we're kind of just like totally expunging Gigi from history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because like, we'll, we'll oh. get we'll get we'll get into that later. Exactly. Um. I just think I was, I was just because it's like I just like because every opportunity it's like oh Vincent Nelly has another different better, better film movie. this year yeah yeah <laughs> um so another big one um mm. I suppose best picture mm-hmm. um so I was like this one I was a bit indulgent so I was basically just doing like you know the ones I like even if they're like not the most like best picturey. Um, so I have Anti-Mame, Cats and Hots and Roof, The Big Country, Vertigo, and The Tarnished Angels. 
So those are all good choices. Um, um, my nominees are Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Knights of Kabiria, Some Came Running, Touch of Evil, and Vertigo. Mm. Good choices, good choices. Um, and those are all our nominees. And <laughs> a bunch of great um, choices all around. And I'm incredibly glad we got to do that part. Yeah. So I guess now it's time to announce our winners. Yes. Again, we um, start with the last category, special effects, then with the first best picture. Mm-hmm. And um, the guests, um, we take turns announcing our winners with the guests going first. So back at special effects. So my winner is A Night to Remember. And my winner is also A Night to Remember. Yeah, like I, I think, frankly, no one else is doing it like like her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that year, you know, it's like there's other things, but like it's just on a whole other level. And like because it like literally is like the blueprint for any titanic related thing for the next 40 years you know like it's certainly it, ha- it ends up having su- it has such like a legacy that it's just like this is it yeah it's it's it has the legacy that titanic 97 has now you know like it's just titanic like it is titanic and its legacy <laughs> how about you what's your winner um I, I said that a night to remember. Oh, sorry. Her. God, sorry. Um, I, guess I blanked. Said that, God. Um, um, so next we have best film editing. Mm-hmm. So for film editing, uh, I went with, took a while to think about, um, but I went with I Want to Live, mostly on the strength of the execution scene, which I think is harrowing in how it's edited. Like it's so, you know, like you just have endless shots of like how many stages there are to the execution in a way that like, like you're just like, wow, people are making decisions, a series of decisions to end someone's life, you know, in a way that's like, I don't know. I grew up, I grew up in Ireland. I live in Britain. Like we don't, we don't have a death penalty. We've, haven't had death penalty in any sense so so like the idea of execution in many ways like i just i it's not a thing i have any capacity for to understand so obviously going into that that element of this film is particularly horrifying to me but and i think that that sequence is so tightly edited in a way that underlines the horror in a way that um i think a lot of american film and television doesn't really go into the the how horrific this is and this is a movie that actually does go into it and is saying to people this is how horrifying and fucked up this is and that's why it deserves the oscar <laughs> nice um my winner is some came running mm. it's a good choice and um next we have best makeup and hairstyling um, I will go with, I'm going to go with anti-mame just because I do think that the fact that Rosalind has so many different hairstyles, which like as much as, you know, the, uh, the wigginess of it all, 
the fun that fun part it's actually quite essential it does help it the movie takes place from like 1927 25 takes place in the mid 20s early 20s up until the then ish present day some point in the 50s right and like through Rosalind's styling both costume and hair and makeup you do feel the passage of time in a way that a lot of movies especially in this period try to do and never succeed at you know like I love Giant but Elizabeth Taylor aging from 1920 whatever to 1950 whatever is absurd like it looks awful and i think that it works well in, in anti-main certainly um and my winner is the fly um of course for obviously um yeah <laughs> so next we have best color cinematography mm-hmm. oh sorry one second just gonna get my uh, color cinematography. Yes. Yes. Um, so my winner for this was Cast and Hodgkin Roof. I think that a lot of color cinematography in this period looks really flat. It doesn't. It looks so vibrant and rich and just like quite, just really, really. That scene where they're having the banquet outside with all like the gorgeous paper lanterns is just it's it's such a beautiful film. So yeah, it's de- it's definitely my winner, I think. Or, or maybe also the big country. Now that I think about it, they're doing different things. <laughs> nice. uh, yeah, it's a tie. <laughs> um. And my winner is Some Came Running. Mm. It has some... What I was really... I, the, the cinematography was the thing that impressed me most in that film. And I think that I, what I deeply appreciate is how much of it was shot on location. Like, like, just like, it just... It's a kind of potency that obviously no one does it as much anymore in studio movies because the tendency is to comp stuff together more in VFX. But like, just like... It definitely helped. It definitely helped the film a lot. Like it added so much to. It, I think. Definitely like, for sure. Yeah, and, and like I know it sounds like a really like try, it doesn't sorry that doesn't sound like a very like um. Observant. I guess what I'm trying to say is because the themes of the movie are so much about someone going back to like the crappy town they grew up in. You know, um, given that they clearly are shooting in some generic middle America town, and you're like. Holy crap, they've got Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Shirley MacLaine in this nothing town. And it's like them as movie stars in this like fundamentally crappy location. You're just like, it's so power overpowering, you know? Evocative. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just, it just gives it so much impact, I think, in a way that enhances what the film is saying a lot. Definitely. Um, so, um, Next, we have Best Black and White Cinematography. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, there's only one choice, really. It's Touch of Evil. Like, there's there's few films that look that good a- anyway. Like, just, and just are so interesting. Like, vis- it's just, it's just so, it's so visually compelling. It's definitely, I think, where it shines because at its core, I think maybe 
I probably I didn't give it as much nominations as you. Um, I think because not that I don't think it's good. I think because in my head I'm going, this is a B picture. It has no place being at the Oscars, which is like I was being very strict with that sort of thinking. <laughs> um, but not even though I did give it like a best picture and best director nomination. But, um, uh, I think that despite all its limitations as a production, its cinematography is really what sets it apart as being like, like I've seen it described as like a Baroque film noir. And like it is, it's the most Baroque that this quite Spartan style or genre gets. Yeah. Um, and my winner is um, Touch of Evil. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough. I think the only thing that came close to me to beat it was the Tarnished Angels. I think that's about yeah. it. Like, like yeah. it's 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 just that they they are in a class of their own, you know. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and I, I guess what, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, when I'm thinking of the best cinematography, black and white of 1958, it's got to be Touch of Evil. Yeah. What other film like? Is this shamelessly indulgent in the cinematography and yeah. doing what Russell Meddy is doing? Yeah. On and like, that set and, like, and yeah. locations and whatnot. Yeah. And like like Tarnished Angels has a lot of merit and it's great, but there's a reason why um people when people say Douglas Sirk, they don't think uh, John Ford-esque Spartan westerns in black and white, you know, like it's 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 interesting, like as a curiosity in Cirque's filmography at the time. Um, it's still a good but, movie. That's oh, no, t- oh, no. absolutely. I don't think that I, I'm not I'm not being dismissive of anything in it. I mean, just like as a as a, it's weirdly like not representative of Cirque's work as, at the time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so, and w- w- what I mean to say is that. It, even though it has like a lot of interesting things, it hasn't gone down in history as like a major uh, touchstone of the art in the way that Touch of Evil has. Whereas other Cirque movies, like you know, Imitation of Life, All the Heaven Allows, like all, all of the great Cirques have gone down in history as like these these touchstones. Yeah. Um. So next we have best costume design. Mm. Uh. Well, like. It, it it it's clear for me anti main like the most co- the certainly it's a win for most costume for me <laughs> and for my winner i went with some came running that's a really good choice too i like i think it's the thing i said before that like it's just it it's definitely makes a case why they should have separate costume categories for like contemporary costume and periody costume where it's like you know where where it's costume with a capital c versus like wardrobe because they're both they're both really important they're both valid but they're doing they've different concerns yeah yeah and 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 i think too often unfortunately things like some came running slip under the radar because their costuming isn't as obvious as it is in anti-mame mm-hmm so next we have best art direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another one for me to go to Anti Mame, just because more than a lot of them, like you know, 
her apartment is fully like a character. It gets it gets made over five times during the film's runtime. It's a running joke, you know, like and I think that it goes through so many distinct styles. Like first, like it's I actually can't recall the order, but, you know, it goes like it goes like uh, uh, oh, yeah, it's like it's like all shinwazari in the 1920s. And then it's like then it's like really modern. Then it goes back to like this weird traditional like wood panel thing. Then it goes to, like Danish mid-century modern. And then at the end, I think she's gone for like a, a taste of India type look, I believe. And it's just really, you know, like I like a joke. I've done location design for cartoons. Like I like a, I like a lo- I like an environment based set directing set decoration joke, you know, and anti-mame is filled with a lot of them. It's quite fun. Like that, that whole sequence, the whole sequence in the finale with them, with the ups and on the couches that go up and down and up and down. Like, it's just like, no one does no one does set based madcap stuff like that as often as they should definitely um and my winner um is some came running Mm. i mostly because of how it brings the town to life yeah i think that i think that it felt as much as like the place was very general, it did feel like a real place. It felt like what these unremarkable small towns are like. And it was very well sketched, not only in like, obviously not just like in the writing, but it did feel like a real place. Like it felt, and, and everything's just so petty and banal and like all the, it's the country club. Like it was, it, I felt it was so believable in its look as well as it's like writing. Definitely. So next we have best sound. Okay. Um, this is, of course, one of the categories I always think that's kind of a bit harder to gauge, historically speaking. But I went with the big country. That's a good one. Um, Lots of great ricocheting al- sounds. <laughs> I went with Vertigo. Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so next we have best original song. Mm-hmm. Um, so my choice is like kind of stupid, but I like I really like the theme song from Gods of the Laker. Like it's kind of cute. It's like a peppy little hoedown number. And when I start watching the movie. And I'm going, okay, let's see what this is like. It's an anti-man movie. It's 1958. He's not doing one of his many Westerns that he did in this period. And just like, you know, Gods of the Laker. Like, oh, this is cute. Um, The movie's deranged, but like the song's cute. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'm going to go with that. So I went with To Love and Be Loved from Something Running. That, that and that's like that's like truly like an actually really great song like it's it's really good and sinatra sings the hell out of it it's it's good so next we have best original score mm. um so for me like there are there are two major choices for me but really there's only one choice so the top two are like the big country and the actual and the winner for me, which is Vertigo. Like it's it's tough. Vertigo is Bernard Herrmann's score is career defining. It's iconic. People that don't know crap about 
classic movies still listen to that score you know like it's so one of the most famous scores like it's up there with freaking jaws like it's doesn't get more famous than that you know yeah um uh my winner is um some came running Oh, interesting. I also I actually also wanted to add honorable mention to I Want to Live because you get some fabulous like Bongo della Muerte where it's like, ooh, yeah. sexy and dangerous bongo music and everyone's sexy and there's murder. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 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 at once genuinely good, but also beyond a parody of itself. <laughs> so next we have best international feature film. Mm. Uh, let's see what should I go for for that um, I think I went with let's see oh um, so for me this is one of the ones I said before really tough year a lot of great competition I went with the music room um, I think that it's it's so wistful and beautiful in what it's conveying um, it's very similar to Sorry, it's not very similar. It's firmly in the Satyajit Ray Ray style of the 50s. It comes between, is it films two and three of the the Apu trilogy, I think? Um, I think they're 56, 57, 59, but whatever. Um, So it's it's in the middle of like one of his most important periods of his career. Um, And I think that it's themes of just like, like, just decay and memory and stuff are so like tragic and potent in a way that like um I, I I think about this a lot sometimes with regards to when people say they don't find rich characters relatable and that is true to a lot of extents um and this is a great example of you were never supposed to find this character relatable in an obvious sense but you're supposed to insert yourself into this scenario and think of similar experiences in your life where you have felt this kind of regret you know and I think that it's so well conveyed just the inherent tragedy of him even though he's not like he's a freaking landlord like he deserves what he gets like (laughs) you know you you know what I mean like it's someone who like on a structural level it's like I hate you but like I get I get the tragedy of this yeah um so my winner is ultimately Mon uncle from France. Hmm. Even though I, mean, I might, definitely... I might um, like some others. Technically, more. This is one I could just watch anytime. Hmm. Yeah, completely. And I think it's also like it is Tati's masterpiece, right? Yeah, I think so. like um, like it's it's kind I of this Mr. Hugo's holiday. I haven't seen Playtime, so I'm not yes. sure if I can say. I my my feeling is that Mon Uncle, when they do the lists of the greatest Tati movies, it's number one. Even though I think it's like Mon Uncle, Monsieur Hulu's Holiday, um, uh, Playtime, they're all kind of you, you know, it's like splitting hairs. But I think Mon Uncle is supposed is probably the one that's like just maybe the most accessible. Who knows? But whatever. Um, yeah, it, there's a reason why it won, right? Yeah. Um, so next we have best adapted screenplay. Mm. Um, okay, let's see. 
Okay. Well, okay. So I do want, I went with Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. And this actually, this is when I should have asked you the question of what you felt about the, 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 the adaptation because so like, I agree with what you said before about um, how it works as a film, because I think that had the added scene with, with Brick's reconciliation with Big Daddy, like in many ways, like going, this shouldn't be here, but it's actually, it's just a good scene. Like it's well-written and I believe, you know what I mean? You're like, I am really emotionally invested in what's happening here. Um, I think, I think that with Canon Hutton Roof, everyone likes to think that they're being really scorching by saying that the queer stuff has, was sanitized from the movie release. And it, and it was, but I think a thing that everyone forgets is the original 1948 Broadway production was later revised by Williams himself in the seventies. So like the version, and that's the version that's typically performed everywhere today. So like the version we're seeing isn't even the original version, you know, like it's, it's, I'm not sure what uh, to the extent of like what how much it's been revised if it's if it's major or minor but it's it's everywhere I've read it they imply that it's like fairly I, I'm guessing that the queer stuff's made more explicit in the in the revised version in which case I think that if the 58 film version is drawing from a less obviously queer 1948 version then I don't think the arguments of it being de-queered is as um incisive as people maybe sometimes think it is yeah um that's understandable um mm-hmm. so um uh for my winner i went with vertigo mm. that that's a really good choice because it's like like yeah uh, a kind of because the novel isn't very good is it if i recall right um i've i've never i've never read it i think the novel's like not that remarkable but it's a great example of when someone takes a kind of okay story and adapts it into something much better yeah um um and your winner is cat on a hot tin roof right yeah absolutely um so next we have original screenplay. Um, yeah. So the Defiant Ones isn't the one I picked, even though I think it is a deserved winner. I went with The Goddess just because I think that the the dialogue at times is so good. And I think that I, I'm a sucker for stories about people who travel and I don't just mean like physically, but people that that change so much from somewhere they came from that isn't nice. Um, I identify with a lot, I guess. But I I I find those stories really, really potent. And I think that the Defiant one is also great, but it's it's the goddess for me. Nice. Very understandable. Um mm-hmm. my winner is Knights of Cabiria. Oh, that's a really good choice. And next we have Sporting Actress. Mm. So um, I went with, I want to say, first of all, like I frigging love Wendy Hiller 
and I excluded her from my list. I think she is someone who should have had an Oscar. And I think that um, she herself said that her role in the in the plays, uh, Pat Cooper, is the best role. It kind of is, but I sort of understand how people aren't so thrilled about her win. But I want to say I went with um, Carl Brown in Anti-Mame, who I think is so damn funny in it. That one particular bit when um, when Gloria Upsom is like, Miss Charles, I loved you in Mary of Scotland. He's like, did you, dear? That was Helen Hayes. <laughs> Just makes me shriek every time. <laughs> um, so my winner is Judith Anderson in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. That's a really good choice because she's playing such a thankless role. Like... Like 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 Big Daddy gets all the actual scenes and heft, and he gets fun lines. Whereas Big Mama just has to like be sad and complain a lot, and like she's frankly frankly supposed to think that she's like absurd and pathetic, right? Like it's it's not. Oh, okay. One second. Oh, I think it's back. Okay, yeah, it's back. Cool, cool, cool. Um, sorry, I was just saying that um, Big Mama is is a difficult part because it, it there's not a lot of depth to her. She cries a lot in a way that is like. Like you're supposed to be laughing at her, you know. You're supposed to think that she's kind of pathetic, um, and I think Judith Anderson, because she's such a pro, like you do feel more for the character than I think the text wants you to. Like, you know, like like everyone hates her. Big Daddy hates her. Like, you know, the family thinks she's absurd, but I think you as the and I think you as the ones are mostly supposed to like think that she's a joke. But like Judith Anderson does make you care about her, especially at the end when you know everyone knows that Big Daddy's dying and she still can't admit it to herself, you know? I think she plays that sequence really well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and um, next we have Best Supporting Actor. Okay, so I went with Burl Ives but not in the big country, which you want for Bear Lives in Cats and Hot and Roof. Um, I think he has such an astoundingly good year this year. Um, but I think his big daddy, like it's, it manages this thing where it's both ludicrously camp, you know, like everyone just calling him big daddy. Um, and the character actually is quite multidimensional. And I really like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm as interested in him as I am in Maggie and Brick, you know, like I find him, he's just such an interesting character and in, and he's played so well by Ives in a way that I actually think he does him so much better than his character in the big country. I think he's good in the big country. I mean, it helps that he's on screen a lot more in Cats on Hot and Roof. And even if he's not on screen, like he's actually present, like he's in the house, like he's nearby. Um, he's a more remote figure in the big country, but yeah, I'm going to go with Burl Lives for Cat and Hotchin Roof, for sure. Nice. Um, 
And my winner is Dean Martin and Some Came Running. Oh, that's a good choice. It's one of those where the more I thought about it, the more I felt like he had the most impact of the supporting character for me. Oh, he, cer- he certainly did. Because Sinatra's character is like quite weirdly passive, I feel. Um, like, I, I, you know, like, like he kind of just like, you know, Um, you're frozen again. Oh, one second. Cool. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, it's back. Cool. Sorry about that. Um, what were you saying about? Um, I, I was saying that like it's it's interesting in Some Came Running that because Sinatra, even though he's the lead, is a really is quite a passive figure. Like the movie literally starts with him waking up on a bus that he was put on by his friends, and Martin does so much to like steer him. Like Martin's the one that has to nag him into actually doing anything, and yeah, you're right. Like. Thinking back about Martin, like he actually has a lot more impact in the plot than I think is apparent. Like, and it's interesting considering Arthur Kennedy got other, but and hates his wife. Like, there's there's not a whole lot there. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of that is sort of true. Um. So next we have best leading actress. Mm. Um so not I don't want I don't want to be like accused to be like indecisive because because like it's I think I ended up like basically picking two like a second tie, but like it's a tough one. But um I think if I was going to go with someone who I would like to win, it's Rosalind Russell, because I think that she is someone who should have had an Oscar. I think she's really fun. I love her. She's one of my favorites. Um, but if I was to go on like the actual like white hot power performance, I'm going to go with Kim Stanley in The Goddess. Like, I think that I fully understand why Susan Hayward won. Like, it makes complete sense. But I think that Kim Stanley is just just so doing so much yeah definitely um for my lead actress pick this might be i don't know how um if this pick would be usual but i go with joanne woodward for the long hot summer oh Oh, and that would that would give her like a, a consecutive win. I didn't go with her um in nineteen fifty seven. So oh, I see, I my see. First win with her. Um, that's a good choice. I mean, like Woodward is someone who consistently put out great work throughout her career. Definitely, absolutely true. Um, so next we have best leading actor. Mm. Um, 
so for this, I went with Tony Curtis in the Defiant Ones because I think he actually does have the better role. He gets to do more stuff in more environments. It's, it, and I think it's the best Curtis ever was. I think it's his best, his actual best, like straight legitimate performance. Not one, because with Curtis, there's always a degree of like camp in that, like, this is in that, like, his role, his performance is always amusing, but he's always like doing quite a lot, I think. He's actually really good in this. And I, I'm saying Curtis winning over Poitiers in that knowing that Poitiers goes on to win for what I feel is a better role for him. Cause I think that Poitiers role is pretty good in the Defiant ones. I think he makes it better than it actually is. If that makes sense. Like, like Curtis, for instance, has that whole, has that whole subplot or the whole plot with Cara Williams and like falling in love with the, with the widow. Like he just gets to do more in that way that Poitiers just kind of just like reacts to things. Um, and Whereas I feel in, in Lilies of the Field in 63, Poitiers just is so much more alive and he gets to do so much because he is fully the lead. Like he's not the co-lead. He's, and he's, you know, one of the only two characters in that whole movie. Um, yeah. So I go with Tony Curtis. Yeah. Totally understandable. Um, for my lead actor pick, I went with mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra for Some Came Running. That's a good one. It's a good one. It's Sinatra's movies and his performances are often quite um, strange sometimes, right? Because it's like, you know, that he wasn't the most cooperative on set with regards to like retakes and stuff. So it can sometimes when the movies are good, they're good. When they're bad, they're really bad. Um, But he's undeniably like a star of the highest caliber. So it doesn't really matter whenever he's good. And this is definitely one of the ones that he's really good. Yeah, definitely. Um, so next we have Best Director. Okay. Um, so I had I, I took a while picking this. My overarching feeling with any Oscar thing, and I, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I tend not to like repeat wins. Um, if someone has a repeat win, I kind of feel it's a bit redundant. But um, basically, I went with Alfred Hitchcock for Vertigo, which it sounds like a really basic choice. You know, it's like Hitchcock should have an Oscar. I think that in terms of a film that is directed, like Vertigo is on a whole other level. You know what I mean? And it's definitely from the director's input. Um, I think that a lot of the other options I had, like like William Wyler for the Big Country, like William already had two Oscars by this point, and I think that while it is a really good film, it's also very standard Wyler, if that makes sense. You know, it's like it's it's sort of like effortlessly brilliant, um, in the way that Vertigo is like so iconic, like and singular. Yeah, for sure. Um... For Best Director, I went with Vincent Minnelli for Some Came Running. Mm. Which is, and like, and of course he won anyway that year, so it all worked out okay. <laughs> yeah. When, and, see, winning for a much better movie this time around. Mm-hmm. And now we have Best Picture. Excellent. 
So I had a hard time picking this. Um, I'm going to I'm going to make my choice now because I, I had narrowed down to either the big country or Castle Hutton Roof. And I think that um, I'm going to go with Castle Hutton Roof because Castle Hutton Roof is still spoken about today. So it would have been a good win for like posterity. I think the big country is really good, really well produced, but I feel like it hasn't stuck in the popular imagination in the way Cats on Hot and Roof has. It helps that Cats on Hot and Roof is based on a very famous play. But, you know, the look of Elizabeth Taylor in that movie is the blueprint for Maggie the Cat. You know, every production since is trying to copy Elizabeth Taylor. Awesome. So my winner for Best Picture is Vertigo. I feel like when you look at the year 1958, I feel like this is the film that most people think about. Yeah. And even though it was kind of divisive at the time. Yeah, only, if I recall it, right, it wasn't it that kind of successful. Yeah, it only received two nominations, but I think time has validated it and vindicated yeah. it. I think that's an understatement. It is like a established certified classic. Yeah, I, I think sometimes when it comes to retroactive assessment of some people's work, and I think Hitchcock is sometimes the worst culprit for this, is that there's a tendency to slightly over-lionize them. Um, and I think that in the case of this one with Vertigo, it's not the case. Like it's as in like Vertigo deserves all the braids it gets, I think. Um Sometimes the cult of Hitchcock gets a bit like, look, I like Hitchcock, but I don't like him that much. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, you know, it's like we can compliment his co-writers and his composers and his actors. Like, it's fine. You're allowed to do that. Yeah. The man himself is sort of a myth at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's... you know, given that the man had like no humanity, like as a deliberate like concoction, yeah. like, you know, it's it's sort of it's very strange because you're kind of like you can respect his work. But ironically, like actually don't know. Whereas on the flip side, let's say Orson Welles, tons of character and like, you know, endlessly, ironically, almost more famous than his movies in some. Yeah. And it's like, and he's like somewhere. It's like I, I, I want, like I feel like he's got an input into everything. And I want to know his input on everything, and like, you know, like it's, it's the, it's, it's, it's interesting that he doesn't get quite the same treatment. He does a little bit for like Citizen Kane, and then that's it. You know, everything else is sort of like, well, that's just a footnote to Citizen Kane, and it's like, well, that's hugely dismissive. Yeah. Um. <sighs> And that wraps up like our little personal ceremony celebrating our favorites of 1958. I have one little addition I wanted to add. So at this Oscars, <sighs> there was an honorary award given to Maurice Chevalier, which horrible choice. If I recall right, wasn't it controversial at the time because of his collaborationist politics during the war? Anyway, I'd like to, instead of giving that to Maurice Chevalier, I want to give it to William Powell, who is, you know, one of the greatest that ever did it, never got the recognition he deserved in later life. 
despite being one of the most charming leading men of the 30s and 40s. Absolutely. Um, yeah, let's do that. Um, yeah. We don't. We don't. We don't need. We don't need to. We don't need to like give awards to Nazi collaborators. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I I wasn't sure what you meant by collab. Sorry. Time, but, um, it's all very. It's all very. I, my understanding of it, it's one of these things where it's like, um, saying it, it's like it's. A, I think it's like a thing a lot. Like a lot of French history and culture has to has never really grappled with, and it's kind of like because if you start pulling at the string, it's like well everyone's guilty and. It's yeah. it, it's hyperbolic, but also not entirely untrue. You know, like there's people like Coco Chanel who are who is an absolute monster, full on agent, versus people doing what they just did to try and get by. You know, like there's a grand scheme of what that or grand range of what that can entail. Yeah, but again, the French culture typically doesn't go into it because again, no one comes out of it looking good. But at the same time, you don't need to give him an Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, um so i guess did we um now that um now that we're um past warring uh, our own awards do we want to talk about the real best picture winner this year oh what was the real best picture winner yes uh oh jesus yes like i just I know it's one of the questions that got submitted, like just how do people go so gaga for it? And like, I truly don't understand. Is it, is it just like the, the best read I can get is that it's, and I don't think this is the case because the public aren't, don't see it this way. or wouldn't have seen it this way. Is it just that like, it's sort of after about 15 years of freed unit momentum of like, you know, them churning out banger after banger of classic MGM musicals much like the way Return of the King similarly swept its awards and it was viewed as like winning for all three of the Lord of the Rings movies. It, Cause that's the only reason I can think of why people went so gaga for it. I guess you could say um, uh, well, that. And from my understanding, it was a big moneymaker at the time. Sure. And there so was a tendency to award big moneymakers around this time. Yeah. And not and not just like a money maker, like you know, it helps that aside from the money, the money in, like the a high gross indicates a lot of people saw this. Like it helps that people actually saw the movie. So like I I, I also feel that like in the fifties, um, there was a real love affair with like French culture in America and especially in American films. Like those, there's a lot of movies set in Paris. A lot of like you know, like a lot of. Uh, French fashion is a huge influence more so than it had been for a while, like, you know, because of the war, but also like, like everyone wants to wear Christian Dior, you know, like the, the, the hourglass poofy skirt thing. Like it's just, it's, it feels like more than a lot of times French culture is really like, you know, funny face comes out the year before an American Paris won best picture in 52. There's, there's a lot of, you know, things kind of depicting the area. Yeah. Um. Wait, I'm sorry. Wait, is Funny Face set in Paris? Or am I completely remembering that? I, I think it is. I think it is. I think okay. it's at least set in France. Yes. 
I, I like because I might because I might be mixing up with Paris when it sizzles, which is 64, which is obviously I think I, that's too far late for the point I'm making. But I think it's set in Paris. But I can't remember. It might be New York. Anyway, it feels very French. That's enough to. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess we could also briefly touch on um, separate cable, uh, separate cables, and it's two. Yeah, yeah. There was some really interesting performances. There was some really interesting. I saw some really interesting questions about that, especially with regards to how they edited the the David Niven role. Um, yeah. So, have you read the play or seen it? No. So I've read I, the play. I do know. Um, I I have heard of like the controversy around David mm-hmm. Niven's role. Um, yeah. It's so I saw I can't remember who posts who posts the question, but because it made me sort of reassess Deborah Carr's role, because I think that I so okay, so in the original play, um it's it's a two-act, it's it's actually two separate plays merged into a movie, a single movie. It's two one-act plays. Um and of course at this time. Uh, Terence Rathkin is at the height of his fame as a playwright, but his plays quickly fell out of fashion after he died in, I think, like the 70s. Um, he was the first playwright to ever be knighted. Like, so he's, he's, his plays are viewed as being very, like, um, establishment, but they were quickly replaced by, like, the angry young man style as popularized by, like, um, Harold Pinter and, uh, and John Osborne. Like, that was, that comes immediately after him. It's all very kitchen sink realism. Um, but the, the the point I'm trying to say is that um, uh, let me just write. Uh, so uh, in the original play, David Niven's character is much clearer that the character is gay, and that he instead of feeling up a girl in a in a movie theater, he he got handsy with a guy, and that's the scandal, which um, I think. I, I understand, but weirdly to me, and I hope I don't say something horrible because I don't, ugh, from a plot wise, to me, that doesn't put Deborah Carr's character in danger because he's fundamentally sexually incompatible with her. So, but because everything else around it, the way the other characters act about her proximity to him, that's all in the original play. Like they just changed this one facet the fact that it's a guy in the theater, not a girl. Or a woman, um, or whatever, and I think that as a result, I saw someone comment that um, that he's supposed to be a pedophile, which I didn't under- I didn't necessarily understand it that way because I assumed that Deborah Carr is doing a now Voyager, and she's supposed to be like a forty year old spinster, rather than like you know like uh, however old she's supposed to be. Like it was it's it's kind of confusing to me how old she's supposed to be, you know, and. The only reason I'm speculating is because like these things do matter <laughs> with regards to how I'm supposed to um how much of this is like absolutely unacceptable, how much of this is these as in like homo you know, people being homophobic versus you know, oh you know, he shouldn't be he like this is an underage girl. You know what I mean? Like these are these are things which are like like um Assus can change in a good way in that like it's fine for people to be gay. It's never okay for people to be 
pedophiles. Um, God, uh, does that make sense? Mm. It's a bit rambly. Sorry. Sort of confused, but sorry. Things gonna make sense. It's fine. It's, uh, it, I, I guess. I guess. I, I guess. What I'm saying is they uh, they changed the the facet of him being gay because obviously they can't have him being gay in the movie, whereas they can in the play, and they changed it so that he was um basically like a groper but he was into women and i remember i think it was Kev- it's probably was kevin daly but someone did comment that apparently he's supposed to be also a pedophile and i didn't i never saw that part of it because i like i said i always interpreted deborah carr's character as being you know like like not so much a put upon young woman as like as like a spinster, like, you know, at least because because Gladys Cooper is a hundred years old, you know, like for her, if she has a daughter, her daughter is at least 40. I, I, I would think. Um, but yeah, like, so like, I think that the, the changing of it in the adaptation is interesting because I think that in the original play, um, uh, Niven's relationship with Sybil or with them um, with with Deborah Carr, it's sort of it it the the danger that the characters in the play or in the movie are implying, like it sort of just doesn't seem to make sense. Whereas, like if he is like potentially a lech, then of course the characters freaking out about him makes sense. And yeah, I don't know where I'm going with it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, um, but there's also Wendy Hiller winning for supporting actress. Mm-hmm. Um, let, me, let me just um, pull up what she had to um, pull up her specific quotes. Yes, she has a she has a bunch of great quotes about it. Um, hold on. I think I'm finding it. Um, um, here's what she had to say after winning her Oscar. Mm-hmm. I hope this award means cash, hard cash. I want lots of lovely offers to go filming in Hollywood, preferably in the winter so I can avoid all the horrid cold over here. <laughs> she has another great she has another great quote where um she's like oh, I can't remember what it was. It's it's um she was in she she broke out in films doing the 1938 film version of Pygmalion and which was written by George Bernard Shaw himself like the the screenplay and like and he was besotted with her like she was his favorite leading lady and stuff and um she always she's definitely quoted about her Oscar saying that like she was a bit ambivalent about it but George Bernard Shaw himself had one so she's like it can't be all that bad and I just thought that was very cute um yeah yeah like she's she's someone who um she's so she's someone who she didn't make a lot of movies but she made it's like every movie she made was interesting um like which is which is very like what these english thespian types did at the time like they only picked a movie if it was in some it was interesting they didn't necessarily they didn't like necessarily have film careers like olivier is kind of the only one that had like a film career um but like, yeah, have you ever seen I Know Where I'm Going? Yes, I have. 
that is like my third favorite movie and she is so perfect in it so charming such a great character and like that's what i think of when i think wendy hiller And I think is right. this this was this was the second of her nominations, yes, wasn't it? Yes, she yes, yes. She received yeah. the final one for Man for All Seasons. Yes, which she's she's all right in. Like for what the role is, it's not particularly. Um, mm. it, it, you know, it's it's very wife of the great man in history. Like there's there's not a whole lot she can do, but you know she hooks your interest enough. It's not her movie at all. Like it's fine. Um. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, like, she did say something about her best scenes being left on the cutting room floor and how most of the acting was just um, shooting her back. Mm -hmm. I don't have the specific quote right now, but something along those lines. Sure, sure. Um, Um, Yeah, like, I think I think I think that she does. She does. She's. Her win maybe isn't the most like inspired, but I think her role is pretty essential in that movie. She definitely like anchors it and gives it because everything else is so chaotic. You know, you've got all these huge yeah. stars, you know, Deborah Carr, David Niven, Rita Hayworth, Burt Lancaster, like, like, and you're just like, what's happening? What's, what's, what's connecting these people? And I think she plays her role quite well, given, given that everyone else is playing much more like insane characters. Yeah. Um, I guess, do you have any final thoughts on this year in film or the ceremony? Um, let's see. Uh, I think that it's obviously, it's, 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 it's a very interesting period because we're, you know, we're, we're at this point minutes away from the collapse of the studio system, right? So things are starting to get real chaotic with the films that are, are breaking through. So for every traditional super production like Gigi or the big country, you know, stars, production, you've got these interesting, small, um, cheap, but like real, just sexy and compelling movies like The Defiant Ones or The Goddess, which are breaking through and getting a lot, quite a lot of traction, you know? And it's, I don't think a monoculture is ever good, obviously, like, I like whenever films that are good, high quality box office, like crowd pleasers can get a look in alongside smaller, challenging, interesting stuff. You know, like you want to actually have to watch some of the movies. If every movie is like a $3 million budget, harrowing story about, you know, living with polio or something like it's like, this might be a great film. I'll only watch it once. I'll never want to watch it again because it's too harrowing. I just want a movie with hot people being charming sometimes. Yeah, and I, I think that it's a, it's such a it's such an interesting like point of flux in Hollywood history because I think that throughout the 60s, I think typically the lineups aren't are often not very good. Um you get a lot of just like weird stodgy stuff. Whereas the fifties, you just got that last, that last vestige of some interesting stuff. So um, let's answer the audience questions um, from do it. from Brits and the Oscars. Um, why did the Academy go Gaga over Gigi? Oh boy! I already answered this, but 
yeah if you have anything I, I, else to add no i i i i i think like even since i said like i think it's pretty much like it's sort of like a salute to the to the freed unit i think i don't know how public it would be known if like they how much people like knew about it as and would consider it but it definitely feels like it's for the body of work going back to you know uh uh babes in arms like all the way back to the early 40s you know um it's the only logical explanation to me anyway and maybe the generalized like love affair with french culture that i feel was going on in american culture at the time yeah um, so this is from Emily Blokowski Malik. In your opinion, what are the best two seconds of 1958? Best two seconds. Um, I think it is in the number I said. It's just it's wonderful not to be nominated when uh Angela Lansbury looks into the audience and says about Shirley McLean, Oh, nice if you like delinquent hair. <laughs> That's um, the one for me. <laughs> I choose um Uh, Bob Fosse and one burden going up from that's a who's that's got a the pain one. from them Yankees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fun one. <laughs> um, this is from Owen Daly. Um, um, they have two questions, but um, we can focus mainly on the first since yeah, I think you already answered their second question. But anyways, are Poitier and Curtis the best double best actor nominees of all time? If not, then who are? Oh, I thought I remember this one. So I think that they are, but I think for them, it's also paired to me for Amadeus because I think it's, you, you know, what I mean, it's like both top tier, and I think Amadeus and that are in the same league. But it's, yes, they're in, they're in, they're at the top, joint top. Um, and um, this is from Sam Meltzer. How close do you think that best actress tally was between Roz and Sue's? Oh, I don't know. It's tough because they're both they're both like they're both running an it's time arc, right? Like Rosalind's her fourth nomination, Sue's it's her fifth nomination, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And they both they both are very different types of performers. I think Rosalind Rosalind did a fair amount of dramas, but she was always a comedic actor and she always shined best in comedies. Um, and Susan Hayward is like the great tragedy. You know, she's like, she is like the 1950s Greta Garbo, you know, it's like, like the great tragic um, heroine. And I think that this is when I was saying that like Rosalind is someone who should absolutely have an Oscar. I think unfortunately the right projects were not the ones that got the recognition they deserve. So, you know, his girl Friday, the women, like the things that she's best in aren't necessarily the things that were rewarded, you know? Um, but she got an honorary award in the end. So you know what worked out okay for her. That's what I would say. Um, yeah. But I think that it's probably neck and neck. Like it's very, it's so like one won the golden globe for drama. One won the golden globe for, for, for comedy. I don't think I can't recall if they did or not, but it's like that kind of thing. Like they're so, just like at the neck and neck with each other, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I think, I guess I'd say it's like Hayward to be nominated a lot in the 50s. Rosalind hadn't been nominated since 1948. So I guess Hayward had a lot more of like, she was quite urgency. present. 
yeah, urgency, and she was present in the pop imagination as an Oscar person in the way that Rosalind hadn't been for a while. I'm, I think she'd done mostly stage work for a lot of the 50s, and I think when she did movies, it would be, be in more supporting roles like in Picnic or something. Yeah. I'll just say thank you, Dash, for um, agreeing to appear sure. on this podcast. Yeah. Um, um, it, w- it was a pleasure to have you on here talk about this year. Thanks so much how can mm, how can we find you on social media um yeah you can find me at dashel silva on both instagram and uh, twitter that's where i'm most active twitter and uh yeah uh, i'm always talking about just like films and the minutiae of it awesome so you can find me on this on twitter at gabe the joker find me on instagram at gabe born i'm also on facebook but that doesn't really matter um, um, you can find the um, Twitter account for the podcast at Alton Oscars. I have a Patreon account that I'll link in the description below. Um, be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake and subscribe for your choice of server. And until the next episode, sit back and relax, cheers, enjoy, and thank you for listening to the Alternate Oscars.